Well, good morning. Happy New Year also. <laughs> so how many of you, give me a show of hands if you actually made it to the new year. I respect that. What about if you made it to uh, the East Coast New Year? Hey, there we go. We didn't make it quite that far. We, we were in bed a little bit before that. But um, I'm so grateful that y'all are with us this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. And what's beautiful about that last song that we sang is that it is the text for this morning. Revelation song comes for the most part, directly from Revelation chapter 4. So while you're getting there, I want to just stop for a moment and pray and thank the Lord for allowing us to be here today. <clears throat> God, you are gracious. I pray that you would settle our hearts, settle our minds, as we today get to peer into your throne room. Open our eyes to your truth. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts and that you would inspire us by allowing us to see the King enthroned. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, like I said, we're finishing up our series the, the Glorious King, and we're in Revelation chapter 4. Um, Revelation, it was a book written to be circulated through the churches. Specifically, you'll remember in the first three chapters, we're talking to those, those, those churches there in Revelation. And this, this, these churches, their context was they were in the Roman Empire, and they're being persecuted. You'll, you'll remember they, they're dealing with things that are like... Um, Political persecution, physical persecution, economic persecution. They were being socially ostracized. They, they lived in a world under, in the Roman Empire underneath the Caesar. And, and the emperor, he both hated the Christians and he hated the Christ. That's, that's, that's what this, this image is for. It's for these churches who are enduring just crazy hardships. And the, the image that God gives them that they would endure isn't a promise that all the persecution is going to go away. It isn't a promise that he's going to take out Pharaoh, uh, Caesar. It's nothing like that. It's that Jesus is seated high on the throne. That is the picture that God gave the church in Revelation so that they would endure the, the side of Christ seated in the heavens ruling is the comfort that God gave the church for them to endure and to motivate them to face the sufferings of tomorrow. This morning, my hope and my prayer is that by seeing Christ in context, you'll be able to endure these momentary conflicts and, and, and hardships and sufferings that we find in our lives because we know that we're, we're living for the glory of the one who's seated on the throne. I want you to gaze today into the throne room of God and see Christ as he is. Not in a manger, not on a cross, not in a tomb, but seated highly enthroned as the king of heaven. 
And the gospel, it's an offense. I don't, as those of us who grew up in church, we may not get that, but this message of Christ is an offensive message. Jesus himself calls it a stumbling block because what, what, the, what it says is you are wrong. You've sinned against a holy, just God and there is nothing you can do to make yourself right except for submitting yourself to Jesus. Jesus is a ruling king and as a subject to Christ, we have to, sub, we have to submit ourselves to him. We have to follow him. And this means that we no longer get to, to seek after our passions or our glory anymore, right? Now we're invited into a new kingdom where we're seeking after his passions and his glory. So this is the main point for the morning. You'll see it on the screen. The reality of Christ on his throne should dictate your actions today and prove that you can trust him for tomorrow. So what do I mean by it dictates our actions? We should live as if Jesus is seated on the throne. And because he's seated on the throne, that's going to dictate how we operate in the world. But not just that, it's going to, him being there proves that we can, we can trust in all the promises that he's made to us. And tomorrow we can wake up and, and live those things out. So let's, let's read our passage together in Revelation chapter 4 as we look at our Savior enthroned in the heavens. He says, <clears throat> this is the, the Apostle John. He's the one who wrote the, the book of John in the Gospels, First and Second John. And um, we, we call John the Revelator because he, he's now exiled on the Isle of Patmos where he sees this, this vision from Jesus. So he says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were, were 24 thrones. And seated on these thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there, there, as it, there, there as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was that of a lion, and the second living creature like an ox. And the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The, the, the four living creatures, each with six wings, are, are full of eyes and, and around and within and and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And, and 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever, the, the 24 elders would, would then fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they would worship him who lives forever. And they would cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There's a lot going on right there. So we're going to take it in three pieces. First, we're going to look at the one on the throne, and that's going to, we're going to be looking in, in verses 1 through 6a. So in 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 verse 1 and 1 through 3 John starts to explain the throne and he he's bringing a, he's not like talking about how beautiful the throne is just for the sake of the throne he's talking about the one who seated it on the throne bringing attention to Christ so in verses 2 through 3 the first thing he starts talking about is this throne and you got to understand a throne always symbolizes power and rule and authority that's, that's what the throne symbolizes. That's what it represents. And whoever sits on the throne has sovereignty over everything underneath it. That means they have complete and total rule and reign. So as, as early as Revelation 1-4, John mentions the throne of God. And in Revelation 3-21, this is really cool. Write down Revelation 3-21 if you're a note taker. Revelation 3.21, there's a promise to the overcomers. These are those who are, who are in persecution that they get to share in this throne of God. Like, I can't stress this enough. We're not just saved from hell. We are saved to reign with Christ forever. We are saved to heaven. So uh, the overcomers, they have an inheritance in this throne. But here, for the first time, we actually see this throne. This throne is, is over all the other thrones in heaven to show the authority and the reign of the one sitting on it. And here's a, a, a contrast. Revelation also reveals to us the, the throne of Satan. And his throne is, is mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. The first time is in to, to the church in Pergamum. And um, that's, that's the... the the heart of, of Satan's rule in, at that time. And when we see that throne, there's a, Jesus tells those saints who live there that they can conquer that throne. That they, that they can, the saints can conquer what's going on there. They, they can endure and they can overcome. So that throne in Revelation 2.13 doesn't seem to have that much power, does it? If, if regular people can overcome it. And in Revelation 13, 2, you see Satan, you see that throne again, and there Satan is given power. He's given power. He doesn't have that power himself. It's given to him. That's Revelation 13, 2. Nobody's given Jesus power. Jesus is God. Jesus has power. Um, the final time we see the throne in Revelation is Revelation 16, 10. And so Jesus, there he sends an angel to pour out a bowl of wrath on the throne of Satan. Jesus doesn't even go do it himself. Pours out that bowl of wrath and, and, and pushes him into darkness and hell. 
Jesus has enough authority that one of, one of, one of, one of, his, one of his angels can just go do it for him. We, we often think that this world is too far gone because, because we, we feel like Satan's, he's just got so much power and control. He doesn't. We give him far too much credit. Sometimes we act like it's a contest of power between Christ and Satan. No. It's, have y'all, have you ever watched National Geographic and, um, there's, I, I, I remember seeing this, this, this male lion take down this baby zebra. That, that baby zebra never had a chance because of the raw power of the lion. The, the, the contrast between the power of Satan and the power of Christ is laughable. Satan doesn't have a chance. That's, that's this picture that we're given here of the might and the authority and the reign of Christ seated highly enthroned in the heavenly places. You need to understand that. So let's look back at, let's look back at the throne in verse T. And on the throne in heaven, with um, <clears throat> this, is, this one we know is Christ because of what's taking place earlier in the book. But in verse 3, John starts to describe this person sitting on the throne. He starts to describe Jesus. And you got you to appreciate, John with a limited vocabulary is trying his best to explain what he's seeing. So Jesus, the first thing that he says is Jesus, he has the appearance, the one seated on the throne has the appearance of Jasper. Now that's, that's a stone that was indigenous to that area. And it's a, it's a transparent crystal-like, um, it's a transparent crystal-like uh, diamond. So that's, that's, when he looks at Christ, in my mind's eye, that's, that he's talking about the flesh of him. That he, that's what he looks like. I, I, I can't even imagine that. And, and then not only that, he mentions another stone. The other stone, the word is carnelian. And that is a, a fiery red gem or diamond. So when, when he's looking at this one who is seated on the throne, that's what he sees. He looks magnificent. And, and think about this. Kings, what they normally do to project wealth and power, they ornate themselves in diamonds. They ornate, ornate themselves in, in gems to show wealth and power. Jesus has all wealth, has all power, but we got to understand this. Jesus is the gem of heaven. So this is, this is a, a, a matter where we might need to check our hearts a little bit. Sometimes when, when we think about heaven, I, and I hear people talk about heaven, it seems like their prime motivation to go to heaven would be to miss hell or because they miss someone who's in heaven. And don't get me wrong, it's... it's I am happy to not go to hell, amen? I am looking forward to meeting people in my family that I do not know or have passed on before me. But that is not my prime motivation. That's not what I'm most excited about. What are you most excited about? Because that, that's gonna tell you about where your heart is. And it needs to be fixed on the gem of heaven. 
on the treasure of heaven. So his image is that of a fiery diamond, and he's seated on this beautiful throne. And, and you got to remember, as you're looking at this, this beautiful one, as you're imagining him, you, he still has nail-scarred hands. He still has nail-scarred feet. This is the one who was pierced for you and me, seated on this throne. This is the one who, who came through the womb of a virgin. That's when, when we imagine Christ and when we, when we picture him with all the things that he did, that's who he is. The one seated in heaven, he stepped off the throne and came to earth. And around the king enthroned is a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. That's just the beauty radiating off the throne, radiating from Jesus. Remember the, the rainbow in the Old Testament? The, 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 the rainbow, it's the picture of a bow, a weapon of war. And the rainbow is Jesus, or Jesus, it's, it's God's perfect picture of his wrath and mercy. That's, that's, that's what the rainbow is representing in, in the book of Genesis when we, we see him hanging in the sky because he said he wasn't going to unleash his weapon of war like that on the people again. Christ is the perfect picture of both God's wrath and God's mercy. So mercy in that Christ gave his life on our behalf. The, the one that we're looking at seated on the throne, he stepped out of heaven on that first advent, on that first coming, on that first Christmas to be executed on our behalf as a criminal. That's mercy. Mercy, we did not have to receive the bowl of wrath that was stored up for us because of our sins. And now we get to have claim to the inheritance of God. We get to have claim to the, to the kingdom of God. But he's also the perfect picture of God's wrath. The bow, like I said, was a weapon of war. Jesus is the weapon of war for the Father. He was his weapon to send him to, to, to conquer sin. But there is a day coming in Revelation 19 when God will unleash, unleash him from the quiver. And all the nations are going to come together to make war against God. And there will be the beast and there will be Satan and there will be the Antichrist. And he will strike them down under his feet. Christ's power is perfect. It's perfect in giving eternal life. It's perfect in giving forgiveness. It's perfect perfect for purchasing our pardon. But you got to understand this. Christ's power for exacting the wrath of God is perfect as well. We, 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 we need to remember this as we go out and we look at those who we love that we, man, we just want to avoid an awkward conversation with them. But we know that they're living in darkness or that they don't believe in Christ. Because we, we know that the same one that has compassion and love for us is coming again. So let's look back at the, 
at the text, and we're going to see the beauty and the power of the one on the throne as he radiates just his magnificence. So in verse 4, we see the picture of his worship. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to who these 24 elders are. So I don't, have, I don't know who they are. My favorite answer to the question, though, is, is the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So I get this from Revelation 12, 21, 12, uh, uh, tongue-tied, 21, 12 through 14. You see 24 persons' names inscribed on the gates of the New Jerusalem. So God, he, he does away with the heaven and earth, and he brings down this New Jerusalem, and there he inscribes 24 names. And I believe that these are the... the the, these names, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And the purpose is that it represents the people of God from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and that, that even though they're spiritual kind of counterparts, they, they represent the, the total people in heaven. So, but regardless of who they are, we know that these people are a big deal. They are in heaven. They, they have thrones in heaven. So remember, any, any throne has authority. So they have some sort of real exercised authority. These, these people have, have crowns. So they are reigning over something. And not only that, they are, are arrayed in white garments. They are pure. They are holy. And, and these ones, they are worshiping God. And we're going to discuss how they how they worship later on because it presents itself towards the end. But can you see this in your mind's eye? The majesty of Christ on the throne with emanating from him a rainbow of emeralds. You look at him and he looks like diamonds. And there's, there's this 24 elders, kingly elders seated around him worshiping. And in verses Five and six, we see from the throne comes comes flashes of lightning and, and, and peals of thunder. Have you ever been really, really close to a lightning strike? I I remember one time I was I was on a job site and this I don't know if it was 30 yards, it felt like it was 30 yards away. A a, a lightning struck and everything just went white. And my clothes, they blew back. I, I went back. Well, I about went down. I, I, I went back at the sheer power and percussion of the lightning. Lightning was striking all around. Flashes of lightning. Like, could you imagine being John? Like, just... He's, he's looking at this. This is spectacular. And now there's, now there's like lightning all around him and, and the percussion of, of the thunder just, just, just shaking you. you, you you've been around lightning. It, it just causes adrenaline to course through you and every hair on your body standing up. That's John. That's what he's seeing. That's this one seated on the throne. The, the, the sight of Christ and the thought of Christ should inspire in us both fear and awe because he is reigning over all. You got to get out of your mind Christ as he was 
in, in the manger or hanging on a tree. Those are things that he did. When you think about Christ in the manger or teaching or, or healing or, or hanging on the tree, you have to remember who he was doing that, who he is. When you think about Christ, you need to see the most powerful, exalted being in all the heavens. That's this one who loves me and you. We, we look back at our text and we see seven torches. These, these, these seven lamps, I believe, represent the spirit of God in the church. Remember, seven's a, a number of wholeness. Um, he, he's talking to these seven churches who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, he tells them, look, if, if you don't endure, I'm going to remove your lampstand. He's, this this lampstand language is, is continual all the way up to this point in Revelation. So I believe that, that the seven torches represent the, the seven churches and the Holy Spirit living, living and active. And the, whole, the Holy Spirit is God. And, and what is the role of the Spirit on earth? To illuminate the Christ to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? The, the Holy Spirit is why when, when you hear the message of God, the gospel, you can see Jesus. The Holy Spirit is why when, 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 when we sin, we realize that we're not walking with Christ. The Holy Spirit is the reason why I can look in this book and interpret any of it. The Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate the sun. So imagine with me. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. And, you know, you could imagine the seven lampstands like a candelabra or like this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. But the Holy Spirit shows himself as a flame of fire at Pentecost, right? I'm, I'm seeing torches. I'm seeing... I'm, I'm seeing uh, bonfires because the Holy Spirit is illuminating Christ on the throne. So again, picture in, in your mind what's going on. You got flames of fire. You've, you've got 24 kingly elders. You've got pearls of uh, pills of thunder. You, you've, you've got flashes of lightning. You've got this one seated on this glorious throne emanating a, a rainbow of emerald, whatever that means, who looks like Jasper and Carnelian. And he's sitting before a sea of crystal, a sea of glass. So in the, in the Jewish mind, remember, that's, that's, we have to put ourselves in context. Can you think of any story in the Old Testament where water was like a good thing? So you had Noah and the ark, How'd that go for the world? Like the Jews are afraid of water. The, the greatest preacher of all time for all the Jews, um, that's Jonah. How, how'd the story of water go there? Um, Jesus even walking on water is showing us some things about who he is because water for them represents death and chaos. Before the throne of God, the sea is still. There's no chaos. There's no death. He, he stills all. He's in total control. This is the Christ that we get to worship. This is the king. 
So now let's, let's look at these, these heavenly beings that are worshiping around the throne. You'll be, you'll be looking at verses 6b, so that's the second part of 6, through verse 8. So in, in verse 6, there's a shift from the one seated on the throne to the ones who are worshiping the one on the throne. And we're introduced to these four creatures, and they're weird. <laughs> we're not going to go into like some deep interpretation of what the faces mean. I just want to paint the picture for you. I want you to see who we're looking at. Because often when we think about angels, we think about like old oil paintings of cute babies with wings and togas. Nope, not these things. These things are bad to the bone. These, these beings have faces, one of an ox, one of a lion, one of a man, and one of an eagle. They, they have six wings that they fly and they, they never exhaust. We see them in the Old Testament in, in the book of Ezekiel. Y'all are going to get tired of me talking about Ezekiel. I geek out on Ezekiel. So on Ezekiel, Jesus shows up. I believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ, whatever. God shows up riding a fiery chariot drawn by these creatures. These things are bad. These are some of his angels. And, and they never cease to cry out their praise. And one of my favorite images in all the Bible is Isaiah 6. Do y'all remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah 6 we, is one of the, the, the other times that we get to enter into the throne room of God. And there are these, these seraphim, these angels. And I don't know if seraphim are these things or something else. Um, but they're identified as, as seraphim. And they're, they're, they're in the... They're in the Holy of Holies. They're, they're, they're before God and they're singing a very similar song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And at the sound of their praise, do you remember what happened? The foundation of the temple in heaven shook. These, these angels are singing a, a similar song and I'm supposing with a similar effect. The word almighty, so the, their song is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. The word almighty stresses God's power in contrast to the power of the emperor, to the power of the Satan. And it, it emphasizes God's transcendence. That means he's bigger than time and history. You got to understand, God is outside of time, both in and outside of time. That might be one of those things that makes your mind go, whoop. But he created time and space. He, he both is outside, but he enters into time to operate with us and to deal with us and to walk with us. The central point of their worship, though, is God's holiness, holy, holy, holy. His omnipotence, that just simply means his power. And look at the end, who was and is and is to come. His eternality. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. And the song crescendos with the reminder that not only was God before history, not only did Christ enter into history, who was and is and is to what? who was and is and is to come. 
Jesus is coming again. And this is the one we serve. So let's, let's look now at the last part. And we're going to see the worship of the heavenly council in, Rome, in, Romans, in Revelation 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> so verse 9 shows these creatures giving glory and honor and thanks to the one who's seated on the throne. And now, now we see these 24 elders begin to worship them. And I love how John puts an editor's note a couple of times in here. He keeps saying, to the one who lives forever. <laughs> to, the, to the one who lives forever. It's, it's one thing to have all power and all authority. It's, 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 it's one thing to sit on the throne in heaven, surrounded by, by lightning, pills of thunder, majestic beings, the appearance of diamonds and stuff on you. That, that's one thing. But Christ will never fade. The most powerful kings in history, they died or were overthrown. And so did the promises made to their subjects and to their loyalists. As the monarchy fell, so did their promises. But those who are loyalists to Christ, those who are followers of Christ... We can know that his promises and our inheritance will never fade because Christ will never fade. Christ will never be overthrown because there is nothing more powerful or mighty than Jesus. So these, these kingly elders, then they, they come before the throne and they submit themselves um, to praise God. And John says they fell before the one seated on the throne and they worshiped him who lives forever. And here's the Here's the deal. The only context in, in, this, in this society of, of a king who would prostrate themselves before another king would be that of, of a country that's either been defeated or they're just, let's say the Romans are coming and they're like, ah, we, we, there's nothing we can do about this. So they, the king would then go prostrate himself before that other king and lay his crown at his feet in hopes that he would not be killed. This is, this is that, we've, we've heard this word, uh, this phrase in church and in, in, in songs about the victor's crown. The Greek word is, is, is uh, stephanos. That's the victor's crown. And when the ancient king would surrender as a sign of complete and total submission, they would give their, their crown as, as a reward, as, as a plea for leniency from the victorious king. So it would, those crowns would be the victor's crown. So I don't, I don't know, again, who, these, who these, 12, these 24 are, but if these are the these 24, if they are the, the 12 apostles and the, the 12 sons of Israel, I believe this represents the complete and total submission of all the saints to God. <clears throat> so this is one thing I think we need to hear. As, as people who grew up, for the most part, in the, in the religious south, you don't get the kingdom of God without making Christ the king. There's a, there's a culture that says, you know, raise your hand, pray a prayer, and, and you're good. And don't get me wrong, like, 
If you pray to receive Christ and you believe it with your heart and you confess it with your mouth, the Bible says you're saved. You're saved. But the Bible talks about judging fruit and it gives us as the individual a lot of evidence that we can judge ourselves by. And, and I mean, that's what the whole book of 1 John is about, is, is testing yourself. And I think a lot of, a lot of preachers, they, it makes them feel good to see people move and they, they, they leave the part out about submitting your life to Christ. Christ reigning over your life. They just want you to raise your hand and come down front and, hey, you don't want to go to hell? Jesus doesn't want you to go to hell. Raise your hand, come down front, and you won't go to hell. And as we'll discover next week in the book of Galatians, that's a different gospel. Because this gospel requires Christ being our king. To follow Christ means just that, to follow to walk as Christ walked, to submit. We want the promises of heaven without the prince of heaven. The only promises for those who don't have the prince is punishment. This morning, though, salvation is available if you repent and you believe and you confess with your, with your mouth and you believe in your heart. The Bible says you will be saved, but... He, he's going to be king of your life. You have to make him king. And if you do ask for, for forgiveness of your sins and you, you ask him to, to reign in your life, the Bible says you're saved. There, there's no call for perfection, but there is a call to, to put your allegiance with him and to operate as if as if your allegiance is to them, to him. So this means if Christ lays on your heart to give and you don't give, then that's a sin. Now, there's grace for that too. But this means if Christ calls you to walk across the street and share the gospel or, or to, to introduce yourself to a neighbor and you don't, you're not following as you should. Repent. It means that he might call you because we're talking about complete and total submission to Jesus. If he calls you to go across the world and you don't, that's not complete and total submission. That's living in sin. That's, that's running from him. If he calls you to stay on a farm or to, to, to start a business and, and to make disciples there and you don't, that's living in sin. You got to understand, he's, he's calling you to something. He's calling us to obedience. Now, obedience looks like different things for different people. But the call is the same. It's obedience and walking in holiness. So, after they cast their crowns at the feet, they sang this song. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive the glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will all things exist that were created. That, that, that last line should take you to, to John 1, 1 and 2. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was created 
apart from the Word, created it, creating it. Nothing exists outside of Him creating it to exist. But I want you to see two things from this passage. One, the glory of Christ, and then two, the vision of Christ. What it does is it dictated the actions, the reality of Christ dictated the actions of the angelic beings and of these 24 somebodies, these, these 24 elders. And when they saw the Christ, what did it compel them to do? Worship. We, they're rational. Angels and these elders are rational beings, and we are rational beings as well. What I, what I mean by that is reality dictates how we operate, how we see reality, rather. So nobody's going to go down the opposite side of a four-lane this morning, right? Not on purpose, why? Because we operate in reality. We know if we do that, there's a high likelihood that we're about to get smoked by an 18-wheeler. Um, we, nobody's going to climb up to the top of a 20-story uh, building and just jump off, right? Because we operate in reality. We know that when we fall down, we're going to hit the bottom. We're not, gonna, we're not just going to uh, take rat poison because we know the consequence because of the reality, Right? We understand reality. And when you look at Christ, when you look at this picture, this picture of Christ on the throne reigning should dictate your reality of how you operate. So when he speaks, when he makes commands, that means we follow. That means if he tells you to go make disciples of the nations, you go make disciples of the nations. Jesus is not making suggestions. He's making commands. And we're going to follow him whether we understand him or not. It means if he defines marriage away, that even if you don't understand why he defined marriage between husband and wife, and this is something you're really, really, really struggling with, if you're following Christ, you're going to submit yourself to his leadership and define it the same way. And I, I just picked one thing, but it goes for the entire spectrum of the human existence that we will act and operate according to the one who's seated on the throne. Do you operate in reality? When you pray, do you pray like you have an audience with the one who is on the throne? Think about, think about how lofty some of our prayers are. Like we just kind of taking, and I'm not throwing stones. I'm, I'm, I'm the, like I'll just take and lob, lob grenades and like I won't even sometimes finish the thought while I'm praying. I just kind of start, you know, Lord, please, whatever, whatever, whatever. Man, I really like Fruit Loops. <laughs> like, so don't, don't hear me like, don't hear me like just chunking stones at y'all. This is where I'm at too. But we have an audience with the king. And do we pray like this one can really heal the sick? When you pray to him about sick people, do you like, let me, let me figure out 28 ways to give you an out. Jesus is God. He can heal him if he wants to, just ask. You don't have to give him an out. He may choose to heal him, he may not. That's not your business. That's his business. Why don't you pray to him like you believe he can? Do you pray like he can really save the most wretched sinner that you know? That uncle you're afraid to talk to about Jesus. 
And if you pray like that and you believe like that, does that reality then dictate how you operate? Because if you really believe that Jesus is mighty to save, are you going and talking to that one that you're afraid of about him? We must operate in the reality of who Christ is. He is mighty to save. He will answer our prayers. This is the one who's seated on the throne. The reality of Christ should dictate our every action. And not only that, it it tells us we can endure because we know the promises and we know that his throne will never fade. Uh, I love this quote by Jim Elliott. You'll see it on the screen. If you don't know who Jim Elliott is, he he was a missionary to, to Ecuador. And Jim Elliott he, he's, uh, he was eventually killed by those people that he was sent to. But in, in one of his journals, his, his wife finds this, this, this that he wrote, and it says this. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The vision of Jesus in Revelation gives us a picture of a better tomorrow filled with with a multitude of angelic beings worshiping millions and millions and billions of, of believers in Revelation 5 of every tribe, nation, and tongue with one voice singing this song. Revelation 5, 12. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. It picks up in 13. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessings and honor and glory and might forever. That's our picture of a better tomorrow that we get to participate in. Being among those worshiping the king. We will be singing to the lamb who laid his life down for us and we're gonna be singing to, to, to he who reigns as a lion. In Revelation, the only language in heaven that's spoken is that of worship. The only things that we'll experience in heaven are joy, love, light, amazement, peace. The only language spoken in hell is the the tongue of anguish. Revelation explains what their experience will be as well. Torment, darkness, and despair. The reality is that Christ reigns and he will be coming back again. And when you see him, when when you see Christ, I think all of us, the only thing we're gonna be wishing is that we, when, when we see him in context of who he really is, the only thing we'll be wishing is that we had done more. And it doesn't matter how much you give in this life, I think we're gonna all see the same thing and feel the same thing because we will see him in all of his glory and all of his splendor. So if you will, just go ahead, let's, let's stand to our feet and I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads.